0: I want to talk tonight about the difference between biblical predestination and a brand of predestination that often seems to amount to little more than fatalism. And the impact of this teaching or understanding on our daily life cannot be overestimated it ties into the conversation we were having this morning when Brother Howard was speaking to us about toxic cures and the soul healers and the problem with that approach is that it relieves or robs rather individuals of responsibility and that's the problem also with the fatalist popular predestination doctrine It robs people of the responsibility and the agency to act and obey and see the change in their life that God would promise. My intention is certainly not to be polemic or antagonistic toward those of a different persuasion. If I'm unhappy at times, I'm unhappy with the doctrine, not necessarily the person, although that might depend I just think that it has devastating consequences if we understand the scriptures wrong wrongly. We twist them to our own destruction. Amen. So, I'd like to just start by acknowledging or defining what God's will is regarding salvation. Does the Bible leave us guessing? Or do we know what God's will is regarding salvation? And is God's will incontrovertible? And if it is controvertible, does that diminish his sovereignty? These would be some of the questions that we're going to look at. I think about in, um, it must have been the late 90s, although somebody could correct me on that. A survey was done of uh, university High school stu- uh, university students, and they were asked, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And the most popular common question among these university students was, why does God not use his all-powerfulness to impose his all-lovingness on an otherwise unfair, unjust world? And I think that's got to be one of the deepest questions at the heart of of the Christian faith. It's got to be one of the deepest questions in all of our lives. If God is all-powerful, and if he is all-loving, why does he not use his power to protect the innocent? Why is there pain and suffering? And how do we interpret these activities in the world that seem in contradiction with his self-defined love, specifically defined in Scripture. I think that we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. And we have to recognize that when God was creating the world, he was the active agent, the sole active agent. And he went through all the days of creation, and at each stage he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when he was done, the Bible tells us that he rested. The psalmist says, he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So in what sense did he rest? Did he take a nap like you and I hopefully did this afternoon? No. It simply means that he changed the nature of his involvement. He went from being the active, energizing force, and then he set things in motion that would perpetuate themselves. And he took his hands off and acquiesced to the creation that he had created. That's not the end of the story. He made man in his image. He's not like any of the beasts of the field. Man is unlike any creature on the face of the earth. There's no real meaningful comparison between man, mankind, human beings, and any other animal that God created. We are made in his image. We ourselves are creators, and one of the defining attributes that mirrors his image is that we have an autonomous will. We get to make choices. Now, it might be Helpful to think that why did God create the earth and man in the first place? What did he have in mind? It would seem from the biblical account that the fall of Satan had occurred prior to the creation of man. That would be an inevitable, inevitable conclusion from scripture. Amen? So we've already got this cosmic conflict between Satan, who was second only to God, who rose up against God, and who fell with a legion of angels who became demons. And somehow, man is some key part of this cosmic conflict between these rival deities. The earliest book of the Bible, the book of Job, seems to highlight this. When Job says that when all the sons of God were gathered, that Satan came, and the Lord says to him, where have you come from? And he says, I have been roaming across the whole earth. It's as if he's saying, I've been checking fences on my property, and everything is intact. And the Lord says to Job, have you considered my servant The Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. And that begins a battle that Job is at the center of. But what is the nature of this battle? This is a cosmic conflict between a king who wants to demonstrate... That the power of brute force, manipulation, vanity, and fear, those are the greatest powers in the universe. And then you have on the other side, this God who is staking all of his glory and reputation on a trust that he has elicited from one man named Job. That God was counting on Job's trust tells us how the Lord is going to win the cosmic conflict. And that the devil holds people in bondage all their lifetime through the fear of death tells us what the counterpart is. So in an oversimplified statement, one could say that the earth and man were created to demonstrate which of these kings would ultimately prove sovereign and ultimate in the world. The seminal statement in the book of Job has to be when he says, yes, and even though he slay me, still I will trust in him. Amen. And so that's how God created man. That's how God created the world. Free will is at the heart of this tension. Because he's not willing to coerce trust. It's no longer trust once it's coerced. So he places man in the earth, in the Garden of Eden, and what does he do? He puts the whole world and all the creatures in it under man's dominion. Man becomes the vassal king, God is the great king, and he intends to reign upon the earth through this voluntary relationship with man. But man breaks the terms of the contract. Would you agree? Amen. So, when God placed the earth under man's dominion, did it cease to be, did the earth cease to belong to the Lord? Well, in an ultimate sense, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. In an immediate sense, he put it under man's responsibility. Do you follow me? So, In an immediate sense, the psalmist says, the heavens, the highest heavens, these belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Psalms 115 and 16. He also says in Psalms 8, you made him a little lower than the angels, some would say a little lower than God, and made him ruler over all the works of your hands. But what did man do? What was the nature of this this rulership? Did it mean that man would rule in God's place? No. It meant that provisionally man was going to fill a role that ultimately was going to be revoked if he violated the contract. And he did. He broke the trust. He broke the relationship and disappointed the hopes of God. It's a fact that in China and Israel and many countries it's almost impossible to acquire land in the sense of acquiring the deed to a property. Instead, the government will give you the controlling rights, and that's your property, and you can say, this is my property for 25 years in Israel? 99 years, 25 years, either one. So they'll give you these controlling rights, and you say, I bought a piece of land, this is my land, and for the most part, you get to do on it what you wish. And yet, in an ultimate sense, it's going to fall back to the government who issued the lease on the property. In an ultimate sense, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. In an immediate sense, man was made the ruler. What did man do with his rulership powers? What did he do with them? He submitted himself willingly to the lies and manipulation and bondage of another, Satan. And so Satan in Scripture becomes the God of this world, the ruler of this age, not man. Amen. And obviously this ties into the atonement. But when God placed the earth under man's dominion and man in turn transferred it to the dominion of Satan, the realities of suffering that occur on earth are man's responsibility. And they, we cannot blame God for what we have done. It is indicative of the power of free will that he gave to us. And so we see at work in nature both beauty and ugliness. Amen. Both healing and disease. We see these dynamics at work and it's moving in the wrong direction since the fall. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that, amen. It's moving toward randomness and decay since the fall. But Jesus came to turn that around. And now we, are, we, we do not see that our bodies have been redeemed. Our bodies are not redeemed. We wait eagerly in hope for the redemption of our bodies. But our souls have been redeemed. Our inner man has been redeemed. And so he says, even we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. But if we wait and hope, we have our eyes fixed on Jesus. And one day in a twinkling of an eye, things are going to change. And mortal is going to put on immortality and this nakedness of vulnerable flesh is going to be clothed with the security of an everlasting physical existence, even though already we live with an everlasting life in the spirit, which is the first fruits, the first taste. Do I, have you st- do I still have your attention so far? <clears throat> this idea of God giving to man is reflected in Paul's words in Romans 11. He says, The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Now, this will be translated in some passages as without repentance, and by that he doesn't mean that he's giving it to you even though you didn't repent, although that's secondarily true. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He doesn't give and he doesn't take it back. Once he gives, it's given. And once he takes it back, it's taken back. But he's not this give and take sort of God. Once he puts the earth under the dominion of man, it's done. And we're going to have to live with the consequences. That's the devastating consequence of free will. So the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. We see this even in the, the way God gives gifts to people who abuse them. Have you ever seen people who had a remarkable gift of music and yet they did not use it for the glory of God, but perhaps they used it even to tear down the kingdom of God? Maybe you can think throughout history of incredibly gifted thinkers or communicators who use their gift to destroy the community of God, even though God gave them that gift. Now he's not monitoring all those gifts and saying, if you abuse it, I'm just going to snatch it back. He gave those things to us, and we now have to live with the consequences of what we do with them. And our judgment is going to be proportionate to our abuse of the things that He has given to us. In His providential wisdom, God saw the end from the beginning, but still gave earth to man and man the controlling rights, even though He knew man was going to fail. And he was going to regret that decision. God does not change his mind. Can we all agree with that? God is not a capricious God. He is a consistent God. He does not say yes and no. He does not say this is going to happen then say oh no it's not going to happen. So let's look at some scriptures that show this. Numbers. Numbers 23:19 God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent or change has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not make it good this shows that once god has put the earth under man's dominion it's done we're going to have to live with the consequences And when when we see suffering in the world, we don't say, God, why have you done this? We say, man, why did you do this? It reflects the tyranny of Satan in the world. When Paul received a thorn in his side, who did he say sent it to him? He said, I received a messenger from Satan in my side. Does that mean that God cannot use those thorns? No, it doesn't mean that. He can He can use those tragedies. He can take the devil's worst weapons and destroy them through faith, through trust. This is what we saw in the story of Job. The devil's throwing everything he can at Job, and Job is is just saying, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. My understanding of God doesn't account for this, but I still trust God more than my understanding. So... But when I say that the devil is the source of every disease and breakdown in the world, I don't suggest that God can't use it. Nor do I suggest that in some passive sense, he's allowed it. But that, that exchange ultimately occurred at the fall. And now, he is going to not allow us to be buried under more than we can bear. But he's going to allow us to give him glory in the face of every opposition, trial, and suffering. We'll get into this more at the end. In Malachi 3.6 it says, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. He's saying the reason you're not destroyed is because I made promises that I intend to keep. We can do with our gifts as we choose Because we have free will. Once God gives something, he will not forcibly take it back. This would violate his very nature. By default, our will is in conflict with God's, yet God does not desire that any of us should perish. Amen. So here's, I'm just going to look at a section and I'm going to call it unlimited atonement. Okay, you tulip gulpers can pay attention on this one. God's will is 100% good toward mankind. And he does not leave us guessing. He declares it over and over and over and over. Somebody says Jesus died on the cross, but he only died for a few because if he died for more than a few and they weren't saved, that would mean his sovereign will was controverted. I'm going to show you that his sovereign will is controverted all the time, but we're missing a bigger aspect to his sovereign will even when we arrange the equation in that manner. So listen to God's unlimited atonement that his will toward us is 100% good toward all people all the time. Jeremiah 29:11, "I know the plans I have for you," declares Yahweh, "plans for welfare, and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Ezekiel 18, 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Skipping down to verse 32. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. He's saying, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to go to hell. Here's the remedy. Repent and live. He's either a fraud when he makes this demand or he's Yahweh who changes not. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He does not say that He takes away the sins of the elect. He says He takes away the sins of the world. He does not limit the atonement. He does not limit the reach or extent of His Calvary sacrifice. He makes it enormous, the whole world. 1 John 4.14 We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John 4.42 And they were saying to the woman... The Samaritans, it is no longer because of, you, because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this, is, this one is indeed the Savior of the world. John 6, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all whom he has given me, I lose nothing but raise them up on the last day. John 7:17: 7, "If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know concerning the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself." Romans 2:4: "Do not despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Titus 2.11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Your translation might read like this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 1 Timothy 2.3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. 1 Timothy 4.10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially believers. By this, this is a meaningless statement from a limited atonement perspective, but he says he is the savior of all But he's saying specifically those who will believe because that's how we're going to receive this available salvation for all. In 1 John 2 he says he himself is the propitiation for our sins but then he clarifies and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. First John four fourteen, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Second Peter three nine, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The opposite of perishing is repentance. And repentance is available for everyone if they want to. John 5.40 And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. If they were willing, if they were not unwilling, it would have been available to them. People have free will enabling them to resist God's will. So now we're going to look at how people resist God's will. Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live. I'm going to get into this in a moment about prevenient grace. That we don't choose on our own whim. We have to choose by the providence of an extended grace. Amen? But when he puts life and death before us, it is our choice. We get to decide the, the outcome. Choose life that you and your descendants may live. Joshua twenty four fifteen. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve Yahweh, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, says Joshua, we will serve Yahweh. He says, if it's disagreeable, the dilemma is not a sovereign decree. The problem is not some counsel in secret places. The problem is that it is disagreeable. That we don't like it. That it does not agree with the inclinations of our fallen flesh. And the tragedy is that we get to choose and live with the consequences. Jesus stood at the Mount of Olives... And wept over Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who kills the prophets. And stone those who are sent to her. The divine voice is fixing to tell us. Who the problem is. How often I. Says the Lord. Wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Here we have God speaking to man in great sorrow, saying that he would have done something, he wanted to do something, but the only thing preventing his plan was the will of man. Romans 13, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist it, resist shall receive to themselves damnation. He says, Whoever is going to be opposed to the power of God is going to resist the word of God, and they're going to receive to themselves damnation. How do we receive damnation? By resisting the Spirit by actively opposing the spirit and will of God that does not desire anyone to be lost, but desires all men to be saved. Revelations 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Here is the initiating, prevenient grace of God that intercedes and interrupts our daily life with an invitation. Can we open the door of salvation before he knocks? No. Can we open the door of salvation and find grace whenever we're good and ready? No. But is it our choice whether we will open that door or not when he does knock? Yes. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens. Here we see the divine sovereign Lord standing outside a locked door that only human will can open. Human decision to submit to God has to reach out and say, yes, come inside my heart. Be Lord of my life. Have your way with me, Lord. He stands at the door and knocks. And he will not transgress the boundary that he has set when he made you in his image, you've got to reach up and open that door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Revelations 22, 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So the spirit says come. And the bride says come. The church and God say to sinners, come, 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 come. And then he says, anyone who desires, anyone who wants this, can have this. God is not the problem, human will is the problem. After we have received God's grace, human choice alone is the determining factor in whether or not we can receive His will for us, His will of salvation. In other words, He provides unlimited universal access to His salvation, Contingent upon our choice. John says, it says in John, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the exousia, the right, the authority to become children of God to those who believed in his name who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. In Matthew 7 he says, everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, receives finds and to him who knocks it will be opened so let the term ask let let God define that term for us and the term seek let that be defined by scripture also in the day you seek me with all your heart I will be found by you and, and the term knock let all of these terms be defined by whether God's word came true when we employed these efforts Let us not stand on the outside and say, I asked, sought, and knocked, but nothing happened. Let's say, let God be true in every man a liar. And when you ask in the way God wants you to ask, you're going to get an answer. And when you seek in the way he wants you to seek, you're going to find. And when you knock in the way he wants you to knock, that door is going to open to you. You just have to do it with all your heart. In Philippians, we're told to work out our salvation and yield to God's resistible grace. So we're going through some other aspects of the tulip here. We're going to yield to God's resistible grace. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he's tying obedience to salvation because true obedience comes from faith. The obedience of faith, as Paul termed it twice in Romans. And he's saying, you got to keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good pleasure. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine as stars in the universe." Somebody says to me, well, he just said, work out your salvation, but then he said, it's God. Well, if it's all God without my activity, then the statement is meaningless. I don't need to work out anything, and I certainly don't need to have fear and trembling if I'm just a passive observer and God's going to do it all for me. Monergism, the idea that there is only one agent, one actor in the equation, is absolutely silly. This scripture is silly in that equation. But if I recognize that I cannot do or, or, or will or do his good pleasure without his grace, then my, my attentiveness is to be sure to move at his response. My attentiveness is to be sure to act at his grace. My, my attentiveness is not to show what I can do without him. My attentiveness is to show what I can do with him or what he can do with me. Hebrews five eight. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. In Acts 7, it says, the, You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Here we have man resisting the grace of God, the Spirit of grace. That's why he would admonish us, Don't do despite to the Spirit of grace. We can do despite to the Spirit of grace. We can resist the Holy Spirit. We can sit in a meeting, and our our mental posture itself can say, I don't want this, I don't believe this, this isn't for me, and what we fear will come upon us. As your faith be, so be it unto thee. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Amen. In Romans 10, he says, But for all Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So, what's the problem? Is God available to people? Is God reaching for people? Yes. But they are disobedient and obstinate. He is not the problem, they are the problem. What it all comes down to, and I can go on all night with scriptures, but we have to define His sovereignty. If he is all-powerful, we need to understand his nature better to process the term all-powerful. If competitive brains define all-powerful from our competitive frames and then superimpose it on the divine, we can't make sense of Scripture. But if we ask God to define himself through Scripture... And then we go and say, okay, then what is his powerfulness? What is his all-powerfulness? What kind of power is it? Then we're going to start to understand the cosmic conflict. We're going to start to understand the story of Job. We're going to start to understand why he wants trust and not merely subservience. What, if you were to say, is there one scripture in all the Bible that most succinctly, Defines God. If so, what is it? It's a three-word phrase. God is love. It does not say God is loving. That would be true. But that would be one attribute. But he is describing his essence. Who is? He is not what he does, although that's also true. He's describing who he is. He says, God is love. If you accept that God's at his essence, God is love, then his power must be understood as an expression of love. And then you start to say, Okay, now I'm seeing that. There are two great power, powerhouses, <laughs> sovereignties in the world. The monarch of the children of pride, who Job also called the king of terror, and the prince of peace, the God who is love. So whenever I define sovereignty as all-powerfulness, do I remember that his nature is love? And that ultimately, his power is to demonstrate love? There are many questions that we cannot get into right here. But I'm going to give you a framework that allows you to harmonize scripture. And if you want to jot down a question or send it by text, you can do that. You can ask at the end of this conversation. But God's sovereignty cannot be properly understood until we understand his love. It's not a question of whether grace is effective and powerful enough to accomplish salvation. Nor is it a question of whether human beings can do good or the will of God without his initiation and energizing. They cannot. In an allegory, the question is this. If my friend purchased a brand new Jaguar and placed it in my garage with the keys in it, does that necessarily entail that I will daily choose to drive it? the same is true of god's power or grace in my life he can give me something that i neglect neglect so great a salvation my choice to neglect so great a salvation and refuse to avail myself of the grace placed at my disposal is in no way changes the jaguar jaguar into a kia or diminishes or undermines the power or goodness of the giver. God is love. As such, his all-powerfulness must be modified and understood in terms of his essential nature. Love does not coerce. I want to read you a a quote here from A.W. Tozer. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that sovereign decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should make the free choice. If in his absolute freedom, God has willed to give man limited freedom, Who is there to stay his hand or say, what dost thou do? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. In Genesis We are shown attributes of God that would defy some of the impassibility that we touched on yesterday morning or evening, I don't remember. Because God's sovereign power is ultimately loved, it cannot coerce people against their will. Therefore, God can regret his own choice or actions which we disappoint. Divine regret is not consistent with the Calvinist view of sovereignty, and yet it is found in Scripture. In Genesis 6, 6, we are told the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart, quote, unquote. God was sorry. In First Samuel, it says, then the, Lord, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Now, their view of sovereignty would have said that God knew all that from the beginning because it's all predetermined. No, it's not. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Same chapter, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Two times in one chapter we were told that the Lord had a regret because of the way the man responded to the opportunity that was given to him. In Romans 10 it says, but as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Two chapters earlier it says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So when God placed the creation under the dominion of man, Romans 8 tells us he did it in hope. And those hopes were disappointed in Genesis 6. And those hopes are largely disappointed throughout the earth. But if there's one man who is willing to trust God above his own mind or physical inputs from the devil and the world, that man starts to prove That God is right, that love is more powerful than death, and many waters cannot quench it. That one man or that group of people start to prove that though He slay me, we still will trust in Him. That our trust is not based on understanding, our, our trust is based on relationship. In the beginning, God created two categories of choice one of life and salvation. One of death and condemnation. Predestination existed in both categories before man made any choice, before he was even created. Do you follow me here? In the beginning, there are two categories of choice. The devil started the first one, started the the negative one. God provides the second one. These categories, broadly, are predestined. Before man ever comes into the picture. Man entered condemnation, the predestination of death, by violating God's order. Therefore, as Jesus said, if we do not believe, we are condemned already. Amen? The predestination is not individual. It is corporate. That's why it even says we were predestined in Christ from the foundation of the world. In John 3, it says, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, there's this one category, and there's this other category. Maybe I'm going to make my right hand the good category and my left hand the bad category. I'm sorry, guys. That's just the way it's going to be tonight. All carnal, fallen, Adamic nature is destined to wrath. When he says, in the day you eat of it, you're going to die. He's making a declaration. He's not saying, in the day you eat of it, I'm going to be filled with wrath and animosity towards you. He's saying, you can walk through a door that will put you on a conveyor belt that ends in death. It's a declaration. It's an announcement. It's an information. In the day you eat of it, dying, you're going to die. And we all got on the conveyor belt and blame God for the outcome. One rendering of Ephesians 2 reads like this, All of us once behaved like them in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and senses. We were by nature destined for wrath, just like everyone else. Whether that's the best reading or not, that is an accurate statement. We were by nature destined to wrath. There is a fallen nature inside of every one of us and that fallen nature only has one destination. It's the enemy of God. It's implacably opposed against God. But we don't have to be the slaves of that fallen nature weighed down and drowned in its judgment. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. God established it, that if you're going to be disobedient to the word, this is a doomed path. This, this behavior, this mindset, this fallen nature, this path is doomed. And if you take it, you're going to be doomed with it. And if you start on it and you realize you started wrong and you want to turn around, the grace of God has appeared to all men and you can be saved. (laughs) Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. We're the ones who get to decide. That's the tragedy. When we plant a watermelon seed and watermelons come up, we say, I'm a great gardener. When we plant sin and judgment comes up, we say he's a cruel God. We are the active agent. We are the one who decides. He told us, this is death and this is life. Choose life that you may live. Then you read in Romans 9, which let me just say briefly about Romans 9. All the election phrasing that he uses in Romans 9 is to conclude by saying it did not result in salvation. But he says if they don't persist in their unbelief, they can still be saved. So there's no universe where you can take that language and make it salvific election. He's explaining his choice and his priority on a specific family, and he's saying God didn't get it wrong if even a remnant follows. But that is one of the best proofs against salvific election in in, in the Calvinist framework. But in Romans 9, he says, this one troubling phrase, he says, What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, in what sense were they prepared? Were they made to be vessels of destruction? No. They are vessels whose behavior has prepared them for destruction. You say, oh no, what if I'm a vessel prepared for destruction? Listen, it's quite possible you might be. Because all of us started out that way. Listen to what he says in Second Timothy before you get concerned. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor sanctified and useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So he says, what if God bore with vessels that were prepared for destruction? Oh no, I was made to be a bad vessel. And then Paul says, if anyone cleanses himself, you can be a vessel prepared for a different kind of work. Can God use the vessels who stubbornly stick to their unbelief? Can he still use them? Oh yeah. He raised up Pharaoh that he might demonstrate his power in him. We're all going to give glory to God. When somebody says yes to the Lord, it bears witness to his goodness. When somebody says no to the Lord, their whole life proves him right. God is unchangeable, inflexible, and his judgment is unavoidable. Yet man is flexible and able to change. Here I'm going to get to my title. God's unchanging. But the good news, you're not. (laughs) We can change. And his word is unchangeable. So he has decreed that this path and this category of rebellion is damnation. You want to join that camp? It's got a fixed, predestined outcome. But there's another camp over here that has just as sure a fixed and predestined outcome. Would you like to join this one? Consider the people of Nineveh. How many of you remember Jonah going down to speak to them? Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is the word of the Lord, is it not? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Man, he wanted him to listen to it too. He got on a, sh- on a cruise ship to Tarshish. The whole thing started going cattywampus. Ended up in the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a fish. Fish vomit on the sand shore. And he's like, what is it now, Lord? Go tell them what I told you to tell them. God's unchanging. Well, here we're going to see it. <clears throat> Yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth down to the least of them. So they're marching down this path that leads to destruction. And God says, go tell them this is what's going to happen. And they hear it, and they're like, let's turn around, guys. Let's move the other direction. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. But he says, I am Yahweh and I change not. Well, i got news for you. If we would judge ourselves now, we would not be judged. If we will accept the word of rebuke, if we will die to the flesh in repentance, we don't have to receive the judgment that belongs to the unrepented. God didn't change. Nineveh changed. Do you see that? In Exodus 32, Yahweh said to Moses, Now then let me alone, Yahweh said to Moses, Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated God. (laughs) Five verses later, So God changed his mind about the harm which he had said he would do to his people. So here we see a mediator. Stepping in and saying, God, I'm going to get him off that path and we're going to get over here. Would you give us some more time? Man is the changeable agent. Man is the flexible party. God's word is true, but we can adapt to become eligible for a different outcome. In 2 Samuel, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranah the Jebusite. Amen. Remember when Jonah, when the Lord relented, Jonah was like, I'm so glad, so good to be a minister of the loving God. I think he was the first Calvinist. He was really unhappy. Except he was actually predicting God's behavior. He prayed and said, please, Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I'm quoting Jonah. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah must have been propped up a couple times. The Lord must have told him, go tell those people. They're going to die. I have destined it so. And he must have gone and done it and seen a different outcome a couple times. Because when the Lord told him to go to Nineveh, he's like, I don't think I want to do it. He says that that's why he got on the boat to Tarshish. I don't fully understand his psychology, but he didn't like telling people something that was going to happen that didn't happen. He didn't understand that the declaration of judgment was an invitation to change. Amen. That's why God had sent him in the first place. Amen? And he, he, he accuses God. He says, you're always like this. Always compassionate. Always relenting. Aren't you glad God is always relenting? Aren't you glad he has no death No joy in the death of the wicked. But that he would repent. He says, if that nation turns, I will relent. That's a quote from the Lord. If that nation turns, I will relent. It's up to them. In Ezekiel, he says, but if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices, justice and righteousness... He shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be re- remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares Yahweh, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Amen. Jeremiah it says, If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil. I will relent concerning the calamity. So do we have a contradiction in Scripture? Do we have the Bible saying God changes not and the Lord promising, I always change? Or at least Jonah accusing you always change. But the Lord says, I will relent. I am Yahweh and I change not. I will relent. How do you reconcile those? Because he doesn't change. Those who are on the path of rebellion are still going to be judged. But if you will hear that warning and get on a different path, you can find a different outcome. In Jeremiah 26, he says, perhaps they will listen. That sounds like he knows everything in the way that the Calvinists say. Perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way. That I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. He is Yahweh and He changes not, but you can turn, you can change, you can get a different outcome than the one that is destined and fixed, inflexible in heaven. Now therefore, amend your ways, says the Lord. Obey the voice of Yahweh your God and Yahweh will change His mind about the misfortune which He has pronounced against you. But that misfortune is coming, but you can step out of its path and get on a different path. Thank you Jesus. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear Yahweh and entreat the favor of Yahweh? And Yahweh changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. But we are committed but we are committing a great evil against ourselves. I'm quoting from Jeremiah 26:19. The Lord Amos 7. The Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said Yahweh. The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said Yahweh. Same chapter, three verses. He's changed his mind twice in one chapter. In the story of King Hezekiah, you remember in, in, uh, in 2 Kings 20, King Hezekiah is a pretty good guy, though he was foolish a time or two. He, he becomes sick with the sickness by which he would die, and he he sends for Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz. And he asks him, is, am I going to die of this? And Isaiah speaks to him and says, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Did you hear me, brothers and sisters? Thus says Yahweh, you shall die and not live. Are you listening? This is a pretty clear statement. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh, saying, Remember now, O Yahweh, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, what I see here is is a man of God saying, What's my future? And the prophet comes in and speaks to Hezekiah in his current state. And he says, this this Hezekiah, Hezekiah 1.0, is going to die. The prophet leaves, and Hezekiah begins to pray. And what I mean by that is Hezekiah begins to change. And he begins to cry out to God, and it says that he humbled himself. Well, there was God's goal all along. That pride was coming before a fall, But he humbled himself. And the Bible tells us, before Isaiah had gone out of the middle courtyard, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says Yahweh, the God of your fathers, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of Yahweh. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my, my servant David's sake. What do we have here, brothers and sisters? We have God making a decree but a man changing and getting into a different place, falling into a place where there's a new decree of blessing and promise for this humbled version of Hezekiah. Do you see it? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. How about the Syrophoenician woman? This woman is from Tyre and Sidon. And she, she comes to Jesus because her daughter is demon-possessed. Amen. And she dogs the Lord. She, she stays after him until the apostles are weary. And they, they ask the Lord, please tell her to shut up we can't take this anymore. It must have been pretty persistent. This, this foreign lady, I, I need help, I need help, Lord, I need help, I need help. And God turns, the Lord turns around and He says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Is He playing with her? And then He makes this statement, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But what makes you an Israelite Indeed. If you walk in the steps of faith of Abraham. So he says, I wasn't sent to you. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But in that rejection, there is an opportunity. And just like Hezekiah and just like Nineveh, she says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And Jesus is taken back and he doesn't change his mind. She changes her position. And he says, woman, great is your faith. I haven't found such great faith in all of Israel. Let it be done to you according to your request. So what's happened here? Is is Jesus schizophrenic? Is he just in a bad mood? No, she belonged to the camp of the pagan. She belonged to the camp of Tyre and Sidon. And that is a camp destined, predestined to destruction. Predestined to rejection. But when she encountered the grace of God, she moved over to this camp. Amen. And she joined the camp of Israel as he clearly includes her in it when he says, I haven't found such great faith in all of Israel. He's still sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but here's one of Israel's lambs right here before me. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How about the word of the Lord saying... a moabite shall not be accepted in the congregation of Israel up to the 10th generation. Is that a true statement? That's God's will. Why is the grandfather why is the grandmother of King David and of Messiah a moabite? Because one day she stood at the same crossroads that the first pagan once stood at whose name was Abram when the Lord spoke to him and he moved. He said, Avram, Avram, leave your people, your country, and your father's house. And he changed from one camp, and he got over in another one. In the same way, the Moabitess came to the crossroads with their mother-in-law, Naomi. Do I have that right? Amen. And Ruth is told, go back. Her sister Orpah says, oh, it's regretful. I'm crying, but I will have to go back. Because that's who she was. She was a Moabitess. Amen. But Ruth says, Don't beg me to leave you. Don't insist that I depart from following after you because I've thrown my lot in with a different people. Amen. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, there I will lodge. And where you die, there I will be buried. And what we hear and see here is not a Moabitess. So the curse and judgment that is predestined on that people does not belong to this daughter of Abraham. Amen. Amen. She comes under a different destiny. Predestination. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Paul in Romans 11 concludes a lengthy discussion of predestination and gives a powerful illustration of two categories. One destined for life and one destined for destruction. And he shows how individuals can change their individual destiny in relation to those two categories. Tune in with me here for a minute. Verse 16, Romans 11. If the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, now I want you to see here, that the branches refer to individuals but the root refers to the category the branches refer to the individuals but the root refers to the community and there's only two the kingdom of god and the kingdom of darkness so he says branches were broken off the individual people who rebelled against christ in the jewish faith they were broken off and other branches were grafted in to this root. Do you understand, guys? There's only one covenant of promise, and you used to be estranged from it, but now he has brought you near through the blood of the cross. So he says, You being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. But the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if... Clanging cymbal and a sounding gong... For if God did not spare the natural branches, he he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. They, it's up to them. For God is is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off out of the olive tree, which is, wild, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So we've got a bad olive tree that's wild, and people are cut off from that and grafted in to a new olive tree that's cultivated. And then we got branches on this new olive tree that are cut off and thrown away. But what is predestined is the two trees. What is predestined is the two roots, the two categories. The body of Christ and the body of Antichrist. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. The branches of the cultivated tree were destined due to the tree they were connected to with life. All the promises belonged to the tree applied to them. However, many through faithlessness, forfeited their place in that tree and branches were cut off. Therefore, they became separated from the promise of life. Others destined to destruction due to the condemned tree that they belonged to were cut off from that tree and grafted by God into the tree of promise. Paul is clear that faith is what allowed this transformation. Paul still warns even these, that they need to maintain a proper attitude toward God Because there is still a danger of being again separated from life if they should become haughty. That is failing to recognize that their promise originates in the tree that they have been grafted into by a miraculous intervention. Paul also promises hope for those broken off that they can still be grafted in if they do not persist in their unbelief. Hallelujah. So... Any questions? Election, let me just say briefly, there's more than one kind of election. There can be, and by the way, I never even looked at the clock. I felt very free tonight. I forgot we were on the clock because <laughs> nobody's coming after me. So it was destined to be this way, just <laughs> So when we look at election, there's more than one kind of election. God can elect individuals or families with special callings. And he does this because of his own design and purpose to use them for his glory, to use them as a witness. And that refers to much of what is being spoken of in Romans 9 and the Jewish family itself. And then there is salvific election. And this salvific election is simple. There's only one who's predestined to salvation, and that is Jesus Christ the righteous. And all salvation must be found not by Him, but in Him. So if we want to be saved, we've got to be positionally in Christ Jesus. We have to receive His identity. He gives us of His Holy Spirit, of His name, amen, of His righteous character because of Him. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He is predestined, and we are predestined in him. And everything else that is that is part of the the project of rebellion that defines most of human existence, that is predestined to destruction. The beauty is you get to decide which kingdom you want to belong to. And you cannot decide that because you licked your finger one day and checked the wind and said, Oh, I think I'll be a Christian. It does not come because of your will or choice. It comes because he extends grace to you. But if you despise the day of your visitation, to quote Jesus, and you, you reject him, that's, that's also your choice. And in his sovereignty, as Romans 9 shows, his plan has not failed if the majority rejects, if even a remnant continues. And so as long as there are faithful Christians on the face of the earth, Christ did not die in vain. Amen. But we know that he said you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. He he compares the whole world to a soul. And so he would have been willing to die for any one of us individually. Amen. If we were the only one to be saved, he would have died for us. He did not die or pay the price because of a certain quantity that equaled a certain value. Because your value is not measured in that sort of quantitative sense to God. Amen. So at the end, he's going to prove that love is the most powerful force in the universe. And that we who have responded to his love and come under his lordship, demonstrate to principalities and powers, amen, that they got it wrong. That the king of kings and lord of lords, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, is Jesus, is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's his purpose. That's his heart. And he extends it to all men. So, the salvific election is corporate. The, individual, the, the non-salvific election is individual and corporate, if that's helpful.